Well, good morning, everyone. It didn't snow as much as they want. They said it was going to, right? Is that a relief to anyone? Because I'm kind of watching them trickle down. Hopefully I get home nice and safe and sound and warm by the time it comes, right? Um, would you please stand this morning as we sing together? This morning we are just going to sing about God's unfailing, perfect, awesome love for us and just how perfect our Father is.
Do you, do you know how many times in the Bible it just describes God's love as unfailing? It is over and over. If you, if you do a search, like on um, our Bible apps or whatever, for love, there are so many times it just comes through unfailing love, unfailing love, unfailing. And it's so amazing and so awesome to know that we are loved with perfect love, with unfailing love. And even if you don't feel loved this morning by anyone else that, you know, maybe standing around you or maybe you didn't get the stuffed bear with the candy hearts, God loves you. He really does. And if he could send you a Valentine this morning, it would be the biggest, most impressive Valentine. I mean, he did, he did send Jesus. And that's pretty amazing that he was able to give his own son and uh, seal his love with that. Amen. So we're just going to continue to praise God and just sing about his love for us and, and be able to just give our love and pour out our love on him through song together.
love you and we pour it all out for you. Dear God, we declare that love that you have for us today. And God, we pray that we embrace it. Lord, that we cling to that unfailing love. 
God, we know that humans, we fail all the time at love and we have a distorted view of love. But God, from you, we have a perfect, perfect example of love. And we thank you that you can give us that good and perfect example so we know what it truly is. So Father, may we love others with that perfect love that you show us. God, may we embrace the perfect love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, my name is Dennis. It's good to welcome you this first Sunday of Lent. Lent lasts for six weeks, starting on Ash Wednesday, and it goes through the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's said to last 40 days. However, if you go home, pull out your calendar and kind of check on that, it's actually 46 days. And that's because we don't count the Sundays of Lent as part of the count. So the 40 days is a reflection on the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness and the time that we need to spend in our own wilderness in order to grow in our relationship with God. For much of my childhood, Lent was observed by Catholics and other mainline denominations, but you heard little about it in evangelical circles. And when it was mentioned, I got to be honest, it was often with a little bit of derision, you know, self-righteously calling attention to the fact that our friend may have given up candy for Lent, but they didn't give up swearing, which they probably should have, or, you know, some other sin that was really an issue. Neat. So he gave up M&Ms. So what? And, you know, the perceived hypocrisy there was used by many to throw the baby out with the holy water, to just say, we're, we're not going to do any of it. Truth be told, if we stopped doing things because of the potential of hypocrisy, we would have to give up life for Lent, right? I mean, we're we're all hypocrites uh, to some degree in different areas. Um, In recent years, there's been more positive talk of Lent in evangelical circles. You'll hear it referred to in positive ways. What happened? Well, many, including myself, have come to recognize the value of the rhythms offered through the church calendar. Seasons like Advent and Lent offer meaningful seasons, seasons of contemplation, uh, rhythms of preparation, and of returning back to God. These practices were often observed by what are called liturgical churches or or high churches. Uh, Churches like ours are considered low church. Not because we wear casual clothing, per se, but because we're more free and spontaneous in our approach to worship. It's not prescribed by a book or someone telling us what we're going to do. So Lent is basically uh, composed of a three-legged stool. One leg is prayer. The second leg, leg two, is fasting. And the third leg is almsgiving or generosity. We pray to reflect on our true calling in God. We fast to release the powerful grip that things can have on us and that can get in our way, in the way of our relationship with God. And we give to honor Jesus' call to serve those in need. So you might ask them, what does Lent look like around Southfield, especially if you're kind of uh, new to the family here? Well, during communion for these six Sundays, we'll be spending time looking at a gospel reading that's related to this season. And then we'll also be doing a reading from a booklet by Ruth Haley Barton that was prepared for Lenten Reflection. 
Further, we'll be offering a Good Friday service, which is a, a somber evening, a night to come and be reminded of Christ's ultimate sacrifice for us. But beyond that, your Lenten journey is really a personal journey. It's a personal experience, one determined between you and God. We don't prescribe any fasts or other practices. It's up to you for you to determine with God what will help you to establish the best rhythm of returning. For many in our times, that involves some sort of fasting from screens, whether it's a television screen or a, you know, a Facebook page or whatever, but just kind of pushing away from social connections for that, like that for a while. But again, that's not something we prescribe. It's just one of the many things we can suggest as ways of um, removing something from our lives that has a real grip on us. So today we're wrapping up our series called Thriving in Babylon. What have we learned so far? What have we seen along the way? Well, we know that if we're going to thrive in our own Babylon, we actually have some solid examples to follow. We have men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and others who have lived through times of great trial and who didn't only survive it, but they actually thrived and they give us examples for us to follow. We, we understood as we went through Scripture that we better know our convictions in times like ours, we better know our convictions, and we be better be ready to live out our convictions. We need to know what we stand for, and then stand up for it. It's important that we, as we're, as we're relaying the gospel to others and the way of Christ to others, that we don't just protest. We're not just against things all the time. We don't just protest, but we actually prove what works. We demonstrate that living the Bible Living the life of Christ is actually one when it is truly lived that is enjoyable and appealing, one that will win people over to God. We learn that if we're to thrive, our thriving is going to be tied to our focus. If your focus is going to be on, on, the, on the news, you are going to get down all the time. Our focus can't be on bad news, but on our big God. Not on little events along the way, but the big picture, the whole story. We learn that if we're going to thrive during this season, we need to make sure that we never hold back from speaking the whole loving truth to a friend. And that further, neither the promise of personal gain nor the fear of personal pain should keep us from speaking truth to power. All of these are principles that we've learned in just the first five chapters of Daniel. Well, today we move to the story that is probably best known in this book. It's the one that is most common. I want to give you the backdrop. So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 6, starting verse 1. It says, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two other administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. So Nebuchadnezzar is gone. His predecessor, the, the man that followed him uh, is dead. He's killed by the army of Darius, the king of the Medes. Darius is now in charge. And in this new governing system, once again, Daniel demonstrates superior capabilities and wisdom. Under a third king, he again rises to great prominence and power. And once again, this stirs up jealousy and pettiness in the eyes of his competitors. The next few verses set the stage as we look at just the way their jealousy overtakes them. They actually set out on a quest to figure out Daniel's fatal flaw. What is it that this man does? What's the area in which we can find accusation? The area that we can take him down? Look at verse 4. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they could not find anything to criticize or condemn. Look at these words. Don't miss them. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. I mean, you want three statements on a resume that mean something? He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Daniel is blameless. He's a blameless man. We're called to blamelessness as believers. That's the way we're supposed to live. 
The word blameless makes for an interesting study in the Bible. You can take version or Bible Gateway, whichever you want, and just punch in the word blameless and see what pops up and the way it is used. Often people who are declared blameless in the Bible were found living in the most corrupt of cultures. Take Noah, for example, in chapter 6 of Genesis. It says this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth. The only one. One person. The only blameless person living on the earth at that time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Just two verses later, the Bible tells us that God saw that all the world was absolutely corrupt. That word corrupt serves in stark contrast to the word blameless. The two are polar opposites. You cannot be corrupt and blameless at the same time. The book of Job refers to Job as a blameless man. In the first chapter, it says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Blameless and complete integrity go hand in hand. That's what it means to be a blameless person. In Titus, the word blameless is used as a quality of a church leader. In in chapter 1, both verses 6 and 7 state that an elder is to live a blameless life. And again, Titus is a book, actually a letter, that is written in a season of grave cultural corruption. Terrible times, and yet people were called to be blameless. We are called as Christ followers to a blameless life, to a life of impeccable character. So then we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be blameless? Well, it does not mean that people will not make accusations. The funny part is, the more blameless you are, the more people may make accusations against you. It is not that there is never an accusation made against you. They will. Blameless does not mean that you will never be blamed. It does mean that the accusations will be found to be false, baseless, and not credible. In his character qualities, Daniel exposes yet another lesson in thriving in our own Babylon. Bad circumstances never justify corrupt character. Character counts. Character counts. Bad circumstances never, ever justify corrupt, corrupt behavior. The verse says he was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. As we navigate our own Babylonian waters, character counts. Everyone else's doing it is not a legitimate defense. And you know what's funny? We say that to our 12-year-old, but then we say it as 40-year-olds like it's okay. It is not okay just because everyone else is doing it. Just because the moral bar keeps sinking lower and lower and lower doesn't mean that all we have to do is squeak over the top in order to look better than everyone else. We do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. We do the right thing, not for reward. Righteous living is its own reward. Well, in Proverbs, Solomon makes this observation. He says, The bloodthirsty hate blameless people. There are people out there that can't stand people who live a blameless life. This was true for Daniel. Those around him were jealous and they were hateful. They just absolutely wanted him to fail. They looked for an opportunity to take him down. There was only one area they could find an opening. Look at verse 5 at the bottom of the slide. Our only chance of finding grounds for accusation against Daniel will be in connection to the rules of his religion. Imagine that statement being said of you. The only way we're going to bring down John or Don, Lorraine or Tristy, Brian or Mary is in connection with the way they relate to their God. He was so blameless that the only opening for accusation was his blamelessness. That's the only area they could find any fault. They said he's too religious. He's too great a zealot. His religion is going to come in the way of him being a good citizen. His love for God is too strong. It competes with his love for country and for king. We're already seeing this reasoning playing out in our own Babylon. As many raise fears that people of faith will have the inability to rule and serve objectively. Daniel's enemies spin a web. They lay a trap. They play to the king's arrogance. Look at verse 6. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. 
We are, we are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors, that the king should make a new law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. The law of the Medes and Persians was irrevocable. We see this also at play in Esther chapter 8. A law was made irrevocable basically to say, even the king is not above the law. The law was supreme. Once the law was passed, the law stood. Well, his pride got the best of him. The Bible says, so Darius signed the law. Now, Daniel had this habit. Three times a day, he went home to pray. He'd go home from work and pray. He prayed with his windows open, facing Jerusalem. And you have to ask the question, why? What's that all about? Well, you need to go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon built a beautiful temple for Jehovah. At the dedication, he prayed a moving prayer. And it's recorded in Scripture. In this prayer, he acknowledges that a season may come When God's people will sin against him gravely, they will sin so gravely that in response, God may send natural disaster. He may even send enemies to destroy them and carry them off into captivity. Listen to Solomon as he speaks ever so personally to the God of heaven. This is in 1 Kings 8, beginning in verse 46. He says, if they sin against you, and who has never sinned? I love the way he says that. We all sin. If they sin against you, and who has never sinned? You might become angry with them and let their enemies conquer them and take them captive to the land far away, far away or near. But in that land of exile, they might turn to you in repentance and pray, we have sinned, done evil, and acted wickedly. If they turn to you with their whole heart and soul in the land of, the en- of their enemies and pray toward the land you gave to their ancestors, toward this city you have chosen, toward this temple I have built in, your, uh, in honor to your name, Then hear their prayer and their petition from heaven where you live and uphold their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you. Make their captors merciful to them, for they are your people, your special possession, whom you brought out of the iron-smelting furnaces of Egypt. Daniel is now in the situation that Solomon predicted. And looking at these verses, we see something interesting. The idea of turning to pray toward the temple was Solomon's idea. This was part of his prayer to God. Uh, God did not command that the people do this. Solomon suggested it. When your people turn away, if they pray toward Jerusalem, if they pray toward the temple, please listen to them. In other words, Daniel was not commanded to do this. But this blameless man was very much in tune with the heart of Solomon. While it was not a command, it was a way of expressing genuine sorrow for sin and a desire for healing. Further, it was a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality. Daniel turned to God with his whole heart and his whole soul, just like the passage said in the land of his enemies, and turning his body toward Jerusalem. Turning his body toward the temple was a physical expression of his internal repentance. In reality, Daniel could have prayed with the windows closed. God still would have heard him. He could have prayed in private, but he was convicted. He was convicted. If Solomon prayed this, I am in line with the prayer of Solomon. Daniel was fully aware of the king's new law as well as the penalty for disobedience. He was also fully aware that there exists a God more powerful in heaven than any king on earth, and a law more important than any law of a human being. Daniel's heart was one with the words of Peter found over in Acts chapter 5, when the apostle said, we must obey God's law rather than any human authority. Daniel's conscience would not permit him to leave the windows closed. He would not go undercover with his faith. He could not be silenced, even in the face of death. And in this, we learn the final principle that we'll uncover about thriving in Babylon. Always pray with your windows wide open. 
Always pray with your windows wide open. Wear your faith on your sleeve, no matter what the cost. Always live openly for the Lord your God. Daniel 6 verse 10 says, But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking God for help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied. That decision stands, and it's an official law of the Medes and Persians. It cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man Daniel, do you hear the contempt? That man Daniel, one of the captives of Judah, is ignoring your law and he's ignoring you. He still prays to God three times a day. The Bible tells us immediately the king was troubled. His pride had clouded his judgment and his law was about to cost a good man, a blameless man, his life. Are you willing to pray with the windows open no matter what the cost? I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, right? Does anyone know you're a Christian? I mean anyone. Does anyone know about your relationship with God? Does the way you live actually betray your faith? Does the way you live expose your faith? We will only thrive in Babylon if we are willing to live openly for Christ to openly express our love for Christ, and yes, to be willing to pay the steep price, if necessary, for the cause of Christ. The rest of the story is really familiar ground, but I want you to hear the words. The Bible says, hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of the predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your Majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. Did you catch that? The king knew he loved God. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and could not sleep all night long. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? Imagine a dramatic pause. Daniel answered, long live the king. May God send, my God sent his angels to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight. And I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he trusted in his God. The last verse of the passage says it all. So Daniel prospered, thrived, during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Daniel prospered, Daniel thrived, and you can too. We can too. Threats do not have to rob us of thriving. Always pray with the windows wide open. I want to close with a story of a man. This story moves me deeply. I, it just really gets to me. He's a true profile and courage. He's a man to be admired and emulated, although I get to admit he's probably not a person that you want to name your children after. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John and served as the Bishop of Smyrna. Hear his story. The proconsul asked this man if he was Polycarp. When Polycarp assented, the proconsul asked him to deny Christ. Deny Christ and I will release you. Polycarp responded, Eighty and six years I have served him. 
and he never once did me any wrong. How then shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul against again urged him, swear by the fortunes of Caesar. Caesar. Listen to this guy's answer. He's about to lose his life. Since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortunes of Caesar, as you expressed it, affecting ignorance of my real character, hear me frankly in my declaration. I am a Christian. And if you desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day and you'll hear me. The proconsul retorted, I have wild beasts and I will expose you to them unless you repent. Polycarp responds, call for them. I will tame you with fire since you despise the wild beasts unless you repent. He says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of of future judgment, of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, you are ignorant of that. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. The proconsul sent heralds to proclaim in the middle of the stadium, Polycarp has professed himself a Christian. The words were no sooner spoken and the whole crowd shouted, unanimously shouting that he be burnt alive. The people immediately gathered wood and other dry materials. When they were about to fasten him to the stake, they would nail a person to the stake so they could not move. When they were about to fasten him to the stake, he said, leave me as I am. For he who gives me strength to sustain the fire will also enable me without your securing me with nails to remain unflinching on this pile upon which they bound him without a nail. Then he prayed aloud, O Father, I bless you that you have counted me worthy to receive my portion among the martyrs. As soon as he had uttered the words, Amen, the officers lit the flame. I've been moved by those words every time, every, ever since I heard them for the first time coming out of Dr. Woodbridge's mouth in my church history class in Trinity. They moved me. They still move me today. They grip me. Eighty and six years I have served him. And he has never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? He's an 86-year-old man. Do you think anyone would have blamed him if he had just whispered, I choose Caesar? Would anyone have blamed him? Those final years of comfort? He couldn't do it. Polycarp knew that you always pray with the windows open. Always. Hear the words of Jesus. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Those who deny keep the shutters tightly closed. They keep their faith private, underground, hidden. Those who acknowledge Christ pray with the windows wide open, not caring who may see or hear, for they know there's only one audience that matters, and that's the God of heaven. I pray that we will have the conviction and the courage to pray with the windows wide open every day, no matter what may come our way in this, our modern-day Babylon. Join me in praying to our Father. God of heaven, you have given us beautiful examples of people who were willing to stand faithfully and firmly on the convictions you placed in their hearts. For Daniel, there was rescue from the mouth of a lion. For Polycarp, he was rescued by flame to heaven itself. It is quite unlikely that we will face martyrdom, Lord. But we all need to face a daily death. A daily death to self. A daily death to popularity a daily death to possessions, a daily death to people admiring us. Father God, I pray that we would be found worthy of the name of Christ every moment. Help us not to cower in fear because of a law or because of a ruler or because of a friend that looks down their nose at our faith. 
Help us to wear our faith on our sleeves, not because we're obnoxious, but because we love Jesus and we know we are loved. Amen. So for our Lenten reading this morning, the the title of the reading is called Solitude, Fashioning Our Own Wilderness. And it harkens back to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus spends time in the wilderness. Familiar passage. Hear these words as written by Luke. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Never miss those words. He was led by the Holy Spirit to a place of danger. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at all the time, for all the time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The Scripture says people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'll give you the, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, he said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I'll give them to you if you worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you're the Son of God, jump off. For the Scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The Scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. And the angels came and ministered to him. The season of Lent derives its structure and its themes from Christ's 40 days in the wilderness, where he fasted and prayed and faced Satan's temptations. This was not punishment. In fact, he had just experienced God's public affirmation of his true identity. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Indeed, he was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit as a part of his preparation for the ministry that was ahead of him. There he faced the deepest temptations of the human experience, the temptation to trust in that which is not God for our security and survival, affirmation and approval, and power and control. Richard Rohr observes, These three temptations are the primal and universal temptations that all humans must face before they dare to take on any kind of power as Jesus was about to do. They are all temptations of the misuse of power for purposes that are less than God's purpose. Jesus passes all three tests, and thus the devil left him, because he could not be used for lesser purposes. If you face such demons in yourself, God can use you mightily. Otherwise, you will for sure be used. During Lent, we experience the evil one's proficiency at crafting very subtle and dangerous appeals to our instinctual patterns to save ourselves through our own human strategy rather than trusting in God for what we need. A true Lenten journey demands that we take a clear-eyed look at our lives and wonder, where am I tempted to turn these stones into bread? Using whatever gifts and powers God has given me to secure my own survival. Where am I putting God to the test? Disregarding human limitations in order to prove something to others and expecting him to come to my rescue time and time again. When, where, and how am I tempted to worship the outward trappings of success rather than seeking the inner authority that comes from worshiping and serving God and God alone? Oftentimes we think of the wilderness as a harsh and punishing place. However, it can also be a place where we find clarity, discover inner strength, and experience the salvation that comes from God alone. It can be a place where we experience God's steadfast love. As Henry Nowen says, We have to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day, shake off our compulsions, 
and dwell in the gentle healing presence of the Lord. Without such a desert, we will lose our own soul while preaching the gospel to others. So normally with communion, we take a moment, a minute, after reading Scripture to allow that Scripture to sink into our hearts and souls. God loves to use silence and solitude, being still, and knowing that He is God. Uh, For our Lenten season, we're going to stretch the time a little bit. We're going to take two minutes to be quiet. And for some of you, that's two more minutes than you've been quiet in about 20 years. For some of you, I promise you, you're going to feel like your skin is crawling off and it's going to make you a little crazy. But the silence is a tool God wants to use in order to really embed his word and his message into your soul. So as you're sitting in the silence, think on this question. In what ways am I trusting something or someone other than God for security and survival, affirmation and approval, power and control? In what ways am I trusting something or someone other than God for security and survival, affirmation and approval, power and control? During this Lenten season, how will I fashion my own desert creating more space for solitude and stillness for the purpose of waiting on God and experiencing his steadfast love as my true salvation. So let's be quiet before our Lord. There will come a day, God, that we will cross from this life to the other, that we will be in your presence, that we will see your eyes. And for so many of us, as we imagine that day, the eyes that we imagine are eyes of judgment. Eyes of contempt, eyes of frustration. And we're going to walk in, we're going to see you, and what we're going to get is eyes just rich with love. And we're going to wonder, we're going to look over our shoulder to see if there's someone else. Is there someone else God is seeing? Because it can't be me. And in that moment, we may finally grasp, we may finally grasp, That it's not about how good we are. It's not about what we've done. But it's about the blood of Jesus that washed my sins away. And I get to be there because of him. We look forward to the day that we will see those eyes of love. But God, I pray that we'd learn to see them now. (laughs) Because that reality is no less true now than it will be then. Our sins have been washed away and we can receive the loving, embracing eyes of our Heavenly Father anytime we choose. Thank you for all in Jesus' name. Amen. So our servers are going to come now and receive the offering. You can put your card in there in the basket as well. We have a few things to share with you. One is uh, this Saturday, the week of the retreat is finally here. Shine, it's here. Want to tell us anything about that, Brian? Yeah, the women's retreat's finally here. Um, 
So they are trying to get everything planned. There's been a lot of work put into this between making videos, setting up groups, all this kind of stuff. So they're actually cutting off registration Wednesday at midnight. So if you have any last-minute invitations that you'd like to extend, get those in by Wednesday. Uh, the reason for that is so that they can have everything set and solidified uh, for Saturday so it can be the best event possible. So again, if you have anybody on your mind that you think might uh, find some great value in this, in this event, uh, let them know to get signed up through southfieldchurch.com through the Journey Group tab by Wednesday at midnight. And if you're a dude and you're still jealous that you don't get to go, I've figured out a way to sneak in. So uh, if you're wanting to help do some serving of our women, uh, you can go ahead and contact me, Dennis, at southfieldchurch.com. I don't know if we'll be able to take everybody if like 50 or 60 of you sign up. But if we can get a handful of people that are willing to come and, and serve, so there are things that they don't have to pay attention to, we'll pay attention to them for uh, them. For them. Uh, that would be great. Every Sunday after church in the back corner, something happens there. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, so we want to let you know again, uh, just a reminder that in the back of the, of the room here, as everybody's kind of scrambling to take down chairs, there's a, a prayer corner in the back. There will always be someone there waiting to pray with you, whether that's for something that happened throughout the week, something you've drummed up that uh, is bothering you, or maybe something just hit you really hard in the service and you want to pray with somebody immediately. There will always be someone uh, ready and back there. So again, take advantage of that because it's, it's a really cool opportunity, especially if it's something that has happened recently or during the service. Um, to share in prayer, connecting with God with somebody else right after the service. Um, so again, take advantage of that. We also want you to know every week when you walk out, there are tables on the sides just near the doors, and on those tables you'll find Bibles. If if you don't have a Bible that's clear, a clear reading Bible, just a plain American English Bible, we encourage you to take one of those. I know for a lot of us we're moving away from paper reading and electronic reading, and that's cool, but if you still have a thing for reading a paper Bible, uh, those are there for you absolutely free, and our only requirement, so to speak, is use it, read it, get to know God through that Bible. And there are envelopes back there, too, if you're a person that likes to use an envelope for giving. We don't pass those out, but if you want to if you want to grab one of those, you can. You have some student stuff for us? Yeah, so uh, it's currently snowing a little bit outside, and we're not panicking. Uh, again, if I canceled right now, uh, our pastor from Buffalo would absolutely murder me. So um, we are not going to, we're not going to be wimps about this, but we will check throughout the day and make sure that, you know, we don't want 16, 17-year-olds driving in the worst conditions. So if it gets to be too terrible, we'll cancel. But as of right now, there are no plans uh, to dump revive tonight. So come on out. Uh, again, we're, it's going to be a great night. And um, we also have a trip that we are going on on March 13th. Uh, we're going to take a, a night away from this place. And we're going to go um, right, right after lunch. We'll leave about 2, 2.15 and head down to Bloomington to a place called Escape. And this is a team building thing uh, where they actually will lock a group of us in a room and then give us an hour with a few clues to try and break out of the room. So it's going to be really cool. Uh, I, they have different themes for the different rooms. Uh, but this is a space-limited trip. So it's first come, first serve. It's 35 bucks. Uh, if your student hasn't told you about it yet, Make sure that they uh, get to come along on this. Escape has let me know that uh, we have 14 slots right now. If we s exceed that capacity, they'll open up an extra room for us, which is just really cool on their part because they didn't have to. Uh, but right now, uh, again, as soon as I, I want to get those slots filled because it's going to be a really, really cool event to, uh, to attend. So get your money in. So again, on the snow, he'll text you or you can check Facebook. Yeah. And if you're fasting from Facebook, you can go to the website, southfieldchurch.com, or, or just listen. We'll, sc we'll scream really loud from our <laughs> house. So whatever, whatever you need. Let's stand up. And as we do, we're going we're gonna to end this series the way we started it, praying with, with force and clarity, the prayer of the kingdom, the prayer of our Father. And uh, we'll do it the old-fashioned way with the these and thous and arts, as well as trespasses. Are you ready? Nice and loud. And by the way, I'm not putting the words up there. So if you don't know it, if you just go, ma 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 God knows what you're saying. Here we go. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Enjoy your week. We'll see you.
so blind My sin was before me I was swallowed by 